if you want to be a radiologist, you have to take your time and training to become a good radiologist. Don't sacrifice your radiology education. Don't be afraid to hop off the train and there is no substitute for action. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Radiology Report podcast, where we are having conversations with the leaders transforming radiology today. You can find us on radiologyreportpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Arnold. In today's installment of the Radiology Report, we are talking to Dr. Hari Trivedi to discuss building an entrepreneurial career in academia and his view of AI in radiology. Dr. Trivedi is a radiology professor at Emory and is the co-director of the Health, Innovation, and Translational Informatics Lab. He is fellowship trained in musculoskeletal imaging. Dr. Trivedi, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So to start us off, you have a really interesting career that you've been building in both academia and entrepreneurship. Before we get into all that, just tell us a little bit more about your background. How did you get started? How did you find your way into medicine and into radiology? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. My course is traditional in some senses and, and really non-traditional in other senses. So I studied biomedical engineering for undergraduate. I went to medical school here in Georgia, which is where I'm from. And then I did my residency and fellowship at UCSF in San Francisco. I actually train in musculoskeletal imaging, but I practice in emergency radiology. So I read a little bit of everything head to toe. And one of the things for me that really was foundation for my career was this itch I got for problem solving and engineering during my undergraduate years. And I think the skill set that you use in medicine and in medical school is different than the skill set that you use in engineering. Medicine does have some problem solving, I think, but really it's a lot of pattern recognition as well, especially in radiology. And uh, what I really enjoyed and missed was the act of, you know, the concept of setting up a problem and solving it. So during my fourth year of residency, I did a T32 fellowship, which replaced my fourth year of residency with the research year. And that's the time I really got into artificial intelligence research, began working on some projects some data set development and started working with some industry partners at that time. And that laid the foundation for my career. I joined Emory directly out of fellowship in 2018 and have been working here since and it's kind of splitting my time half and half between clinical medicine and uh, running a research lab. So lots of directions we can go in. But firstly, I also studied engineering in college and I was the person who it, it sounds like you liked the problem sets, like they would give you the problem sets and you would go home and you yeah. would do them with passion and, and rigor. Yeah, I think, you know, I always tell this story that people ask you, what was your favorite class in college? And I think I loved thermodynamics, which interestingly was a class <laughs> that everybody else hated. And our, I still remember on our final exam, one of the questions was, is Xena, the warrior princess, wants to bake a batch of brownies, you know, create a problem and solve it. So essentially you could design it however you want. You design the parameters of the oven, how much heat there was, what the specific heat of the brownie <laughs> batter was, how much time it would take to cook. So you only really needed a couple of formulas to solve it, but really it could only solve that if you actually understood the concepts. And that's what I really liked. I remember, you know, there's this fluid dynamics course that I had and I just couldn't get it through my head. And you could stare at that formula for four hours. And if you don't get it, you don't get it. There's no way to memorize your way out of that. And that was one of the biggest differences I felt between medical school and engineering, which was the act of understanding something and solving it 
from the ground up. And I still use a lot of my engineering knowledge, both in work and just day to day, like wiring stuff around the house versus radiology kind of tickles a different part of your brain. And I think those two can be different in some senses. Super interesting. I, I relied on friends like you to make it through engineering, but I absolutely see what you're talking about in imaging, especially seeing lots of cases, repetition, memorization is so important in AI. Problem solving is so important. Data manipulation, thinking about how to set up a problem is you know half the battle and understanding the math behind it and how it works. And so it's a powerful combination. And so you mentioned something that's pretty unique, though you kind of glossed over it. You said fourth year, I started doing some research with some companies. My wife just finished her fourth year of radiology. She's a fellow now. I don't think any of her peers were doing that. So how did that even come to be? Were you like, I know what I want to do. I want to consult for some companies and I'll send them my CV or what'd you do? So my trajectory was a little bit unique in the sense that there were several times during residency where I thought about leaving residency. I think every two years between medical school and residency, I was thinking, this is not for me. I need to change careers or go do something different. And I think part of it was the fact that I was in Silicon Valley and there were all these startups and healthcare related startups. And I said, well, you know, what am I doing? And what are these guys doing? I should be doing some of that stuff, right? What am I doing here? Just, you know, studying medicine, because I knew that at some point, you know, to scale, your impact, you have to think a little bit bigger. Day-to-day patient care is obviously really important, really interesting and critical, but it just depends on the types of problems you want to solve. And so during my fourth year, there was this opportunity to do a research year at UCSF, and I began working in AI work at that time. And there was a group in the data science that was building a mammography data set. And mammography is one of these unique types of radiology exams that's very standardized. The images are standardized, the reporting is standardized. It lends itself and it's it's very high scale. 40 million mammograms are obtained annually in the US. So it's kind of this perfect type of imaging to try and apply artificial intelligence to. And so I began as the only radiologist on that team helping to curate and build the data set and then you know down the road build some of these models. And I knew that I wanted to eventually take that knowledge and use it to work with companies that were in this space. And so during my fourth year in my fellowship, every conference I went to, predominantly the RSNA conference and the SIM conference, RSNA is Radiologic Society of North America, SIM is Society for Imaging Informatics. There would be 50 to 100 vendors at each of those conferences. And I would go to the booths, talk to the vendors, see what products they're working on, talk to them about my research and really show them that this is a space that I'm in that's new, but that I understand and actually work and get my hands dirty with, and uh, that I could provide some value to them as a radiologist who understands AI, which five or six years ago, there was really very, very few people in that space. And so that's how I got started. I probably talked to 100 companies, visited 100 booths per conference, interviewed with five or 10 of them, and, you know, picked the one or two that seemed to be the good fit for me. So it was really kind of just a bootstrapped effort. I love that story. Such focus and hustle. I think people don't realize sometimes, you know, just putting yourself out there can be uncomfortable, but it works. It's not rocket science either, right? You followed a process. You said, okay, where are the companies? I'll go introduce myself. Yeah. I think part of it is in medicine, you are trained for a specific task and to be really, really good at a specific thing to become a physician. And that's incredibly valuable and incredibly important. I'll never downplay the importance of that. But what you don't get taught is 
the specialties or the specialization that you learn in medicine is pertinent to medicine, right? You become a specialist, an interventional radiologist, an interventional cardiologist. You become the doctor to treat XYZ cancer, right? And that can be of value to companies that are in that specific space. But if you want to work in kind of the healthcare tech space, then maybe you need an additional skill set to show your value in that space. And you can talk about it until you're red in the face, but until you do a project in that space and actually demonstrate what we presented abstracts and posters at these conferences and show that you know what you're doing, I think that's when people's ears perk up and say, hey, well, this guy actually is working in this space and maybe he can provide us some value. And this is less and less the case as time goes on. But I think when I was in training not too long ago, I finished medical school in 2012. So it's only been about a decade. The relationship between industry and pharma and medicine, I think it was a little less open than it is now, right? But now I think it's much more commonplace for doctors to work with industry, especially in my field, and realize that industry is not this evil force that's trying to influence medicine and take money and that kind of thing, but really a valuable partnership. And I think getting over that mental block and barrier and thinking about, oh, well, how will I be perceived if I'm working with industry? Will I be a sellout? Can I be a researcher and an industry liaison at the same time? And that kind of thing. Getting over that mental block was also important, and which I think, by the way, is significantly less now than what it used to be. Okay, so you're sitting there in Silicon Valley, your friends are starting companies, and you're thinking about dropping out, you decide not to. How did you get comfortable not dropping out and saying, okay, I want to go to Emory and find this career where I'm going to be half industry, half practicing? How did that come to be? Yeah, so... I think my fourth year of residency when I started this T32 year was the first time that I felt at peace in a very long time. And I think you don't realize that you are stressed or strung out or at some level unhappy until you're on the other side of it and you look back and like, wow, I don't know how I survived that. I remember actually my first few years of residency, I was getting sick all the time because I wasn't sleeping. I was stressed. I was like, how am I going to learn all this stuff? And am I doing the right thing? There's all these questions. And so my fourth year, when I started doing this research, I think everything clicked. I took a few courses, learned machine learning, learned Python. I had programmed a little bit in college, but Python either didn't exist or was not very popular back then. And so I just started coding, picked it up, and I realized I love coding. I mean, I missed it. I loved it in college. I had done it for 15 years, and then I started doing it again. I'm like, this is fun. And so from there, at that point, it had taken a lot of effort for me to form these industry relationships. And I was putting in a lot of time with some of the companies I was working at. At one point, I was putting in 40 hours a month with a company, which, you know, as a consultant is a lot, 10 hours a week. And I was doing that all nights and weekends and evenings and stuff for days I had off. And I knew that that wasn't going to be sustainable. I knew that, you know, I was married. We knew we wanted to start a family after I moved here. So I knew that it wasn't feasible for me to work a full-time practicing radiology job and do AI research or industry work. And so I actually didn't have a lot of intention of working in academia, really didn't cross my mind. And so what I did is I started networking with private practices out here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I met with some of the biggest groups here and talked to them and told them point blank, this is what I wanna do, this is what I'm interested in. Will you give me a job where I work 50 or 60% in radiology and pay me accordingly? And I'll do whatever I want with the other 50% of the time. You guys don't worry about it. I'm just a half-time, half-FTE position. 
And the groups, they said, well, that's really interesting and that's great for you, but that's not what we're looking for. When we hire, we need a full FTE. So if we're hiring an MSK radiologist, we need a full-time MSK radiologist because these groups hire according to volume, right? And so if they have volume for a full-time MSK rad, they don't want to hire two rads at half and half. They want to hire one. And so in the background, I had been meeting folks at Emory at conferences I'd been attending and met with uh, Nabil Softer, who's the vice chair of informatics here. Adam Prater, who's a radiologist, and Carolyn Meltzer, who's the previous chair who left a few months ago, just started chatting with them and, again, had a very open conversation and said, this is what I'm interested in, this is what I want. And Carolyn Meltzer said to me, well, we don't want you to work for us half-time and do industry stuff on the side. We want you to do that AI research here inside of Emory. So why don't you work clinically, you know, 60% and 40% research, and we'll give you typically the way these packages work is You'll get a few years of runway or you'll get a startup package and you'll use that to build your lab and get grants. And so I had a three-year runway where I had 40% research time given to me. And the goal is within that three years, you apply for grants, get funding, and you end up funding that time yourself. And so that's how we've done it. So we've taken the past few years to start a lab. I have a co-director, Judy Gachoya, who's an interventional radiologist. And she and I run our healthcare innovation and translational informatics lab here at Emory, where we do a lot of this AI work. And through the lab now, we work with a lot of companies and help them validate their models, work on product market fit, do trials and that kind of thing. Has the three years passed? The three years is up. Yeah, I'm almost done with four years. In October, I'll be four years in. And grants are always tough because, you know, no matter how good you are, you have basically a 10% chance of getting any federal grant. It's just a numbers game. So we apply for lots and lots of grants. We don't get most of them, but we have between Judy and I, we've been very fortunate. We've been able to get enough funding for, you know, running our lab, a few postdocs, a few PhDs, lots of equipment, lots of GPUs and compute. And uh, some of that funding comes from federal sources. Some of it comes from nonprofit foundations and some of it comes from industry where we use our data to validate models and help them with FDA submissions, things like that. When you're working on these AI models, obviously a lot of these companies, they're VC backed, they're trying to build huge financial returns for their investors. Does the lab get to participate in that upside or is it purely for grants and that's it? Yeah, there are some theoretical arrangements. So it is, I think, there's two types of companies that we work with. Some are big established companies, the Amazons, the Microsofts, the Googles, and those guys. And with those companies, there really is no prospect of intellectual property. They pay you funding for X amount of work, which is tied to what personnel will be required, how much of their time is required, any equipment, any services, that kind of thing. You come up with a budget and assign you know, a timeline. And then other times there's small companies that smaller companies that will approach us. And they may not have as much cash and they'll say, we can offer you, usually the, the offer is instead of some kind of equity, they'll say, we'll give you the product for X amount of years for free or at discounted rate. The problem with doing things that way is, that, you know, if it's a young company, you actually don't know if that value, whether it's free access to the software or even if it happened to be equity, which is extremely rare, I have a hard time believing VCs would agree to allow you know a university to have a royalty or equity in the company. It does happen. It hasn't happened with us. But in any case, the trouble with doing that is you have real costs up front, meaning your time, your PhDs, your postdocs, your equipment, hardware that you have to pay for with real dollars against some potential dollars that may come in down the road in the form of 
you know, discounts or free software, or even if it was equity, right? And so that's a tough balance. And so maybe if you're a lab that has a ton of funding and you're well-established and you have, you know, five R01 grants, you know, $5 million budget a year, you could maybe afford to take a flyer on something like that and say, okay, if this pans out, it's good, but I've got some extra wiggle room and we'll dedicate some staff. We're not really in that position yet, right? Where we can take a flyer on something. Cause if I take on a project, I've got to have the staff and people for that. And we don't have a couple hundred extra thousand dollars laying around in most cases to front that against the potential of getting something down the road. Well, that's until everyone hears this podcast. Yeah, Health, exactly. Health Innovation and Translational Informatics Lab. They're open for business. <laughs> that's right. Memory. So that's really helpful for me because I, I don't know a lot about this. So you've got your academic research where you're getting grants from different funding sources. You're doing research, but that's not scratching the entrepreneurial VC Silicon Valley itch that you have. So then sounds like you've taken that and turned that as well into the ability to start some company I know you started a company called Lightbox Radiology. First of all, what is Lightbox Radiology? How'd you go about starting it? And how do you fit it in with the portfolio of other work that you're doing? Yeah, so Lightbox AI- Sorry, is Lightbox, a, Lightbox AI. Lightbox oh, that's AI. fine, yeah. We just call it Lightbox. So Lightbox, actually, the radiologists listening will know, Lightbox 25 years ago was the, or not, maybe not even 25, 15 or 20 years ago was where you would hang a film to read an x-ray. So it's a box that's backlit with translucent kind of frosted plastic or frosted glass. The light would come from behind. You'd hang an x-ray and that's how you'd read your x-rays and even CT scans and MRIs before everything was digitized, right? So that's where the name came from, Lightbox AI. That company really was born out of just visuals, like being in the space and sensing there was a need. So the companies I was working with and continue to work with have this issue where AI models require tons and tons of training data. And that training data has to be labeled, you know, with pathologies, with abnormalities. Oftentimes you have to draw bounding boxes or segmentations or label specific parts of images. You need all that information to train the model. And in addition, after the model is trained, you want to submit that model to the FDA. You have to have the model performance validated against a test set that is annotated by board certified US radiologists. And there are a ton of general image annotation companies out there, people that do annotations for self-driving cars and other visual recognition systems, facial recognition, things like that. But radiology is a niche where you know you can't train somebody, can't train them very well to segment a lung cancer or a breast cancer on a medical image. So medical image segmentation and annotation is kind of this highly specialized tasks that has to be done by radiologists or at least residents and fellows that have been doing radiology for a few years. And so this company was created just out of a recognition of that need. I was working with companies that were sending their projects to general image annotation firms, coming back with not so great results. And then I would be the radiologist as a consultant there, pointing out the issues, fixing things, working with the engineering team to work around some of the issues or sometimes annotating things myself. And so I said, well, hey, this is a, a service that is needed. And so I started Lightbox AI, which is exactly what you would imagine as an annotation services company where we work with radiology AI companies that need data sets annotated. And I'll link them up with residents or fellows or board certified radiologists, scope a project, help them actually figure out what types of annotations they need, how much it might cost, how they may be able to streamline some of their processes to save time and money. 
and then package everything up for their FDA submission or for their training data. So I take those projects and I, I work with a team of, you know, 20, 25 grads who are essentially subcontractors. They're usually full-time radiologists and they do this as kind of side income for them. And, you know, some of the projects are pretty interesting and pretty neat. Radiologists actually interest, like ask a lot of questions. Like, what is this product? What is it going to be? Because AI is still this relatively new space and people want to know how it's going to turn out. So a lot of them get kind of into it and talk to the company and say, you know, well, how's this going to be used? And I like this and I don't like this. Very cool. So how did you get this started? How'd you finance this? Did you bootstrap it? Did you, you know, get a yeah. customer and go from there? Did you put some money in? Did you group up with some friends and family? Like how'd you pull it off? So the nice thing about any services company is you don't have a lot of overhead. So my overhead is really my website and my time, right? And we source projects and we distribute them to radiologists. And so as a project comes in, it gets funded and that funding gets dispersed to the radiologist. So it was essentially self-funded from just, you know, getting the business set up and the website and that kind of thing. Everything we do is organic. So it's just word of mouth. I don't market, I don't advertise. I have a website, but I bet if you Google you know, Lightbox AI or radiology annotation company. I don't think it's up there, but we have enough to keep me busy to the point where I don't actually want to market because I don't think that I'd be able to handle more work than what we have. So at any given time, we're working on two to three projects and there'll be 15 to 20 rads amongst those projects. And I would say that's about the upper limit of what I can handle. If I wanted to go bigger than that, we'd have to start getting some other staff and somebody to manage the projects. And I'm hesitant to do that because the person who manages the project would have to be another radiologist that understands the space as well as I do. And that's expensive, number one, and that's difficult to find. And if my thing is, look, we provide this as a service and it does provide some income and that's great, but I do it really to maintain a pulse of what's going on in the marketplace, maintain those relationships and contacts and just really stay engaged with the space, right? And as soon as you hand off that responsibility of managing the project to somebody else, I lose that direct relationship and contact. And to be very frank, I don't want to go raise money and raise a big team and hire full-time radiologists. I have a full-time job that I love. And so it doesn't make sense for me at this point in my career to try and scale up that business. It sounds like you're thinking about it right, you know, recognizing that it is a services business and can't take all that overhead. And so it's a perfect bootstrap business for now. But I don't know, are you going to get the itch? Do you see yourself long-term becoming, you know, an entrepreneur and, and going more? Could you split your time? It sounds like a third, a third, a third between business, research, academia. I, yeah. I can't do it. Like I'm an entrepreneur and that's what I spend my time doing. I'm all in and trying to split my time beyond that. I couldn't imagine. Yeah. So how do you think about the long-term for you? You know, this is something that people don't talk about much because it took me a while to realize this about myself, even. Being an entrepreneur requires a large amount of risk tolerance and the ability to tolerate discomfort and perhaps not the lifestyle that you wanted for a set period of time until you make it and these kinds of things. And I realized that when I was in med school and residency, I had several opportunities to leave medicine and go work for a VC, go work for a startup. In fact, after I finished residency, you know, there were some companies that said, well, why don't you just come be our CMO and, and work with us? And every time one of those opportunities came up, it was tempting and I was excited and flattered to be 
given the opportunity, but when I looked at the risk reward of typically an industry you will make on average, especially early on, I would say about half as much as you would make as a practicing radiologist, right? Startups just don't have the funding, even bigger companies. As a radiologist, you've been training for five years to be very good and very fast at a specific set of tasks, and that generates a lot of revenue, right? Companies can't afford to pay that rate to radiologists. So what you do instead is, you know, you work for about half, which is still a lot of money, don't get me wrong, and then you have equity, right? And so if the company makes it, you have a big upside. If it doesn't, then you got paid well, but you didn't get paid as well as you would have as a radiologist. And when I looked at the equation and the risk reward of leaving medicine altogether, one thing was as soon as you leave medicine, I think if you leave completely, your value can drop pretty quickly in terms of your medical expertise, right? And so my value now, a lot of it comes from knowing AI-related information or running AI projects, running a lab. The other half of my value comes from being a practicing radiologist and knowing boots on the ground, what's going on, how to read studies, what's new, you know, that kind of thing, right? There's a ton of value there. And I think if you stop practicing altogether, that will fall off pretty quickly. And it's the same reason that there was, you know, options. Sometimes I think McKinsey hires medical students straight out of med school that never do residency and they start up at a higher rank. But I don't think that, in my opinion, you have the knowledge or the medical skill set at that point to provide really additional value. Your value as a physician to any company is in large part, I think, tied to your actual practice of what you do, right? And so in any case, I think for me, between, you know, we're young, we've got a lot of loans, we've got young kids, both financially and risk-wise, I think it makes more sense for me in the short term, at least five, seven years to stay and continue practicing medicine. Not to mention, I love what I do. And I love practicing 50%. I love running the lab and working with those students. That's rewarding in its own way. Running a lab is like running a company anyways. I mean, really, you talk about entrepreneurism. I started the lab in my living room with a GPU server that I bought and built myself and had a resident figure out how to open up the port on my router so that people could SSH in and start working right? Because I didn't want to wait to get funding and lab space and everything in Emory. So for six months, the lab ran out of my living room and then Judy joined and, you know, we kind of pulled our resources and created. So I think that itch is kind of scratched with what I'm doing now. The joy of entrepreneurism is really solving new problems and working with a team and seeing people grow and building something new. And we get to do a lot of that in the lab, even though it's inside of a university and not inside of a private company. And so at some point, maybe that equation changes, but I think for the foreseeable future, I mean, things are, I have nothing to complain about. Things are great. I love that. And you make a super interesting point, which is that it's a three-legged stool of the skill sets that you're bringing. And that if you took one of the legs out of the stool, the whole thing might fall down. And the depth of expertise that you're gaining practicing medicine in a complex hospital system every day is critical Mm -hmm. to then the applications that you're building and the research that you're doing. So I love that. Yeah. And just, you know, a second note is as an academic researcher, you get to try things in a relatively risk-free environment. The only thing you risk is your time, right? Mm -hmm. So being inside of Emory, I have access to Emory data that I can extract, de-identify and use for our projects and postdocs and PhDs that are new, eager and smart and willing to try new cutting edge things that you couldn't necessarily do if you were in a VC funded company that's got to bring a product to market in 12 months, right? So 
you actually get to take bigger risks in some ways and try more interesting and experimental things while having access to the data while inside of this university environment than you would if you were an entrepreneur. And I think there's like this hidden benefit. People think of it as, oh, I'm in a university. If I create something, Emory or the academic center takes my IP. It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to them. And, you know, why should they get to have it? I, I don't really think about it that way. I think that the stuff that we do, especially in AI research that requires big data and infrastructure, I couldn't do that unless I was at Emory. In fact, I literally could not do what I'm doing now if I wasn't part of a big academic center, the data sets we build and release and partner. And so it makes sense to me that because I'm doing this work in a protected academic environment with those resources, that that institution, you know, gets a slice of that intellectual property because I'm, it's like if I was outside of here, it wouldn't exist at all. So you wrote an influential paper earlier this year titled The Business of Artificial Intelligence Has Little to Do with Radiologists. In it, you write fewer than 30% of radiology practices have adopted AI. And then you go on to make the case that the incentives of AI are not always aligned with the incentives of the business of radiology. And that could be one of the causes of lagging adoption. So a few examples that you gave are, you know, in a fee-for-service system where your improvements to quality and patient safety actually are not sufficient justifications for the purchases. So I'm a private practice. I care about volumes. I'm actually not paid on outcomes. And so just showing that I have better outcomes is not going to be able to get me to hurt my margins. As an example, you go on to give other examples like, you know, there's lots of AI claiming to reduce burnout because they make certain exams maybe easier, but that alone employee satisfaction might not be enough of a justification. So just a lot of really interesting findings and, and examples throughout the article. What was the core point of the article and, and why do you think it struck a chord within the radiology community? So I think the core take-home point of this article is to help radiologists realize that AI products that make logical sense to us and that make our lives easier does not meet the burden of proof for a financial outlay for a hospital system or an academic institution because there are many other drivers and stakeholders for what gets purchased and what's valuable. And before writing this article, I actually interviewed about 25 different stakeholders, C-suite, big companies, small companies, informaticists, academic rats, private practice rats, to try and get an idea of if we know that some of the software works, which I believe it works, why are we not buying this stuff up left and right? You know, what's the bottleneck? What's the blocker? And it turns out that I think every medical specialty thinks of themselves and thinks of their importance and their influence in their workday, but doesn't do a good job necessarily of thinking of how their work plugs into bigger parts of the healthcare enterprise. And so if I have a software that helps me read a chest CT three minutes faster, does that make a difference to the healthcare enterprise? Is that going to affect patient care? Is that going to affect patient outcome? And it turns out that for a lot of radiology software, the answer to that question is no. You know, if I can read a case slightly faster and be 10% more efficient, maybe I'll save that 10% time on my end and the radiologist end. So if, let me give you a concrete example. Chest CT costs, let's say two grand. Out of that, the radiologist, the technical fee is $1,800, $1,850. The radiologist professional fee is maybe 100 bucks. let's call it. 
I save 10% on that professional fee, right? So I say 10% time, I save 10 bucks out of $2,000. So if you're a big practice with a couple hundred rads, or if you're one of these conglomerates like Rad Partners or a teleradiology group that literally has a thousand radiologists, then that 10% adds up to a few FTE. You know, when you're doing 20, 30 CT scans a year, that 10% makes a difference. If you're a practice with 20 people, 25, 40 people, it doesn't really make a big difference, you know, saving 20 grand a year. If it doesn't allow you to meet the threshold of not hiring that one additional radiologist, it doesn't really make a big difference. So if a company wants $100,000 for a piece of software that will save you 10% of your time and you add all that up and it comes to 20, 30 grand, it just doesn't make sense. Even more importantly, for example, if you have a piece of software that just makes a radiologist's life easier but doesn't save them time, so there's software that's an automatic impression generator or automatically measures nodules for you, that as a radiologist, I would love. But if you can't quantify it into a time savings, it's going to be hard for a practice to justify purchasing something like that just to make the radiologist happier. And then you mentioned quality. So the example that I love to give about quality is that in a fee-for-service system, improving quality does not necessarily mean cost savings. And in fact, in some cases can decrease revenue for a practice. So the example I love to give is in mammography. You know, we do screening mammography every year annually for women over 40. A thousand women get screened, about a hundred get recalled out of those for additional imaging. About 40, 50 get biopsied and eight of them have cancer, right? So if you really look at this funnel, you're doing a thousand screening mammograms to detect eight cancers. You're also doing 50 biopsies to detect eight cancers. So if I'm an AI company that creates this home run slam dunk software and says, I can decrease your biopsy rate by 25%. So instead of doing 50 biopsies, you only have to do about 30 biopsies to catch these eight cancers. And the 20 additional women never get to get biopsied. That's great for patients, right? 20 women didn't need to get biopsied. That's great for healthcare insurance companies, the payers. But that's actually not great for the radiology group who's getting paid for each procedure that they do. So you go to a private practice group and say, hey, here's this great software. It's better for your patients. We'll charge you 50 grand a year and you will make $150,000 less in revenue by using this. Who's going to buy that? Right. And it's unfortunate, but that's the way our fee for service system is set up right now. That's the way our incentives are set up. You take the same software to a universal healthcare system, you know, a vertical system like in the UK, where it's a single payer, and that's a win-win-win, right? The doctors are paid a flat salary for all the work they do, whether they do 20 biopsies or 40 biopsies, they get paid the same. So you take that software there, the healthcare system saves money, which is great. 20 fewer patients got biopsied, and their doctors had to do less work, and they didn't miss any more cancers than they would have. So you have this triple win that just depends on what the payment model is for the procedure, right? And so those business implications make a big difference on the adoption of radiology AI software. And that's why I titled it, you know, the business of radiology AI doesn't have a lot to do with radiologists. So if that's the case and you could have these different practice models finding ways to find value in the AI in you know, example of a fully integrated hospital system, are you seeing then more adoption in those healthcare settings as opposed to in your private outpatient settings? I would say that in the US, the majority of adoption we see actually is related to not the diagnostics, but things that are related to triaging, image optimization, reconstruction, so things that can increase throughput. A scanner optimization that decreases noise or maintains image quality while cutting scan time in half. 
So you can acquire an MRI in half the time and still get the same image quality. Typically, shorter MRI sequences would provide a noisier image, right? So if you can take a five-minute sequence and cut it down to three minutes, you can squeeze an extra couple patients on the scanner in a day, right? That's $5,000 per scanner per day. And Emory has, I don't know, 20, 30 MRI scanners, right? So the way something like that scales is massive. I mean, it's exponentially larger than saving 10% of time on a radiology read, you know, 10 bucks at a time. The other area that we see adoption is drivers of patient capture and retention. So there's a model that was created that can detect coronary calcium atherosclerosis in the coronary arteries on routine non-gated chest CTs. So patients get chest CTs all the time. There's a specific type of chest CT, a gated chest CT that you would do if the patient's having chest pain and you have suspicion for coronary disease. We do a couple of thousand of those per year, but non-gated routine chest CTs for other reasons, pulmonary embolism, chest pain, cancer screening, we do 20, 30,000 of those a year. So we do almost 10 to 15 times more. And so there's a model that's developed that can quantify coronary calcium on these routine non-gated chest CTs. So we consider, we call that exhaust data, right? This is basically additional information on a scan that was already being obtained, but not being utilized. Now, if that information makes its way into my radiology report, that's great. Okay, the patient has a coronary calcium score of 50. Okay, as long as it's accurate, I don't really care much whether that calcium score is in my report or not, right? But who cares about that? The cardiologists care about that. Because if you have a way to automatically screen every patient that's getting a chest CT and screen the patients that have high coronary calcium and therefore at high risk of coronary artery disease, those patients get referred into cardiology. And that's additional patient capture at the hospital system or at the practice. And those patients may go on to require a stent, a procedure, hospitalization, whatever it might need. And so that patient capture interventional cardiology procedure might be worth $20,000, $25,000. Hospital admission for something like that might be worth fifty dollars or $75,000, right? And so that model, if it catches and refers five additional patients per year, per year, that end up getting a procedure, you're already in the six figures, right? Again, something that saves 10 bucks a pop for a CT scan, right? So I think right now, it's not the diagnostic models that are being used by radiologists that are being strongly adopted. It's everything around, everything that occurs before and everything occurs after we do our interpretation because there's not a lot of great use case models specifically for the interpretation of what we do. And there's exceptions, but that's a very long conversation. But I would say on average, we're you know before and after. So last question on this, and we might have to have you back on and go deeper sometime soon, but do you feel like the low hanging fruit are picked off here? You know, we figured out the easy things, we figured out the big ones and that, you know, everything else we're kind of into marginal benefit or is it still, you know, there's a lot of huge opportunities out there and there's a lot coming. There's a lot coming. I think just like any new field, a lot of startups have perished and a lot of dollars have been lost along the way of people learning lessons about what works and doesn't work. Five years ago, AI was hailed as this just groundbreaking technology and you know we won't need radiologists anymore. We should stop training radiologists. AI will read scans autonomously in five years and that hasn't come to bear. And 
it's for a lot of the reasons I discussed, in my opinion, that, you know, there's these business considerations and also that AI use cases are still relatively narrow. You can do a few things on a CT scan or a few things on a chest X-ray, but can't do everything that a radiologist is doing on a given scan. And I think we're still very early. I think what's been picked off is what people thought was low-hanging fruit, but it was almost more like low-hanging fruit that's not very tasty right is low hanging <laughs> fruit that was not valuable right from a business perspective so it was relatively easier to do none of this stuff is easy easier to do the data was available public data sets they build these models and then when they go try to sell you, you know you start realizing that the business model needs to be very different and so i'd be happy to come back and talk about this more but there's a ton of creative ideas in this space a ton of creative people in this space figuring out how now to match this novel technology with the right business use case by extending beyond just creating diagnostic software for radiology. And there's a few companies that have something valuable in that sense from a commercial perspective, but 90% of radiology AI companies are not generating any substantial amount of revenue, in my opinion. And very, very few, a tiny fraction, maybe even generating any profit, if any. You know, I think the only ones that have done well are the ones that have gotten acquired by bigger companies. But I don't think an independent, freestanding radiology AI software company is generating profit yet that I know of. Well, that's a great place to leave it. Last question for you. What advice do you have for any early career radiologists? You know, one of the things that we get asked a lot about is where does education fit in? And this field's changing so fast. What do I need to know? What do I need to learn? So any advice for people that are sitting where you were 10 years ago, entering Stanford's residency program, year one? Yeah. Two oh, sorry, things. it's not Stanford. It's uh, UCSF. UCSF. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Two things. Number one is do not sacrifice your radiology education. You only get one time to train. You only get those five years to become a good radiologist. After that, nobody's reading behind you. Nobody's checking. If you miss something, nobody's you know double checking your reports. If you want to be a radiologist, you have to take your time and training to become a good radiologist. There's no excuse for it. Don't get so sidetracked with other stuff that you sacrifice your radiology education, right? The only time I get help now is if I see something, I don't know what it is. I can go ask a colleague for help. But if you don't see it or you see it and you call it the wrong thing, nobody's checking behind you. So that's advice number one is do not get so sidetracked that you become a mediocre radiologist. The second thing is don't be afraid to hop off the train or put the train on a different set of tracks. And what I mean by that is, I think that when you start medical school, you get on this train that's on a track for 10 years and you know where that train is going. And it ends up in a pretty nice place. You say, if I ride this train for 10 years and I survive and I keep feeding it coal or whatever and doing my due diligence, I will end up as a good physician with a good comfortable lifestyle and good job security. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But if you don't begin to think outside of the box early, you will just continue on that train and end up at the same destination as everybody else, I think. And so keep an open mind around you. You know, there's only so much you can consume that's valuable, including this podcast, before you decide to take action. And there is no substitute for action. Every time somebody comes to me and says, hey, I'm interested in AI, what should I do? I don't know anything. I say, that's fine. You don't know anything. Take this course. 
in the next four weeks. Shouldn't take you more than a month to finish and then come join me on a project and learn hands-on because you can consume and consume and consume and consume. And if you never apply it, you'll never learn anything. So I would say, don't be afraid to explore a little bit outside, but as quick as you can gain some kind of skill, some kind of value, and then start honing that skill through a real world project. Um, otherwise you're just running on a hamster wheel. Dr. Trevetti, wonderful conversation and great advice. Thank you so much for joining us. Yep. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Radiology Report podcast. Be sure to visit us at the radiologyreportpodcast.com or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts to join us for our next episode. We are always looking for great guests. If you have someone you'd like to hear on the show, please get in touch with us online.